the rich man his heart for you to miss. His butt keeps getting bigger, so there's plenty there to kiss. <laughs> oh, everybody bows down. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan, and I am also Tom Nolan, and this is episode sixty-two. We did. It. I actually knew the number was sixty-two. I was trying to think of a joke for sixty-two, and I couldn't. Sixty-two. Come up with it. <laughs> nice. It's a new position. It is. It is when you. It is when you have oral sex with a coat hanger. Great way to start the episode. Is the Do you know what else coat is hangered? Do we? Ha- I, well, I have too many questions. Do you know what else is similar to uh, oral sex with a coat hanger? Chris Rock doing a new adaptation of the Saw franchise, uh, rebooting it. Just the knowledge of that is like whatever oral sex with a coat hanger is. Extremely pleasant. <laughs> or confusing. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say confusing is, is the afterword. Or leaving you asking you know, why. When we talked about this earlier, it seems like there's a new tremendous trend. The episode should not be called Oral Sex to the Coat Hanger. Come on, Mario! <laughs> Come on! Um, there is a tremendous trend, it seems now, in comedians uh, deciding to become horror writers. I mean, it started with Jordan Peele expertly uh, doing Get Out mm-hmm. and his follow-up Us. Now Danny McBride wrote a decent, pretty good slasher. In Halloween, and now Chris Rock's getting in the game. When's Louis C.K.'s horror movie coming out? <laughs> it's going to remake Rosemary's it's, Baby, but instead, uh, of, that, instead that, of the devil, it's going to be that, Louis C.K. Is that going to be called When a Stranger Stands in Front of You? <laughs> when a Stranger Am calls, I allowed to make that joke? When a Stranger Calls and he just does it anyway. He's just standing there, <laughs> uh, staring, at, staring at you. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to make that joke, but um, Louis C.K. deserves it. He the definitely women, deserves it. The women did it. Louis C.K. did. Yes. Fuck you, Louis C.K. Yes. Uh, today's beer, Tom. Uh, is uh, from Voracious Brewing Company. They are out of Monroe, Connecticut. It is uh, apparently their flagship beer. Oh, really? It's called 29 Pews. Is there, a, is there a major significant church in Monroe? I don't know, but it's named... I mean, they named this beer after the 29 church pews, which were repurposed... To decorate the walls of their tap room. Oh, right, because they do have that. Voracious kind of has that, that aesthetic on the inside of uh, Eben and. I have not. And so not. it does have like a church sort of aesthetic on the inside. Oh, really? Um, so I have a, a conflicted past with Voracious. Uh, Voracious is co owned or maybe completely owned by the brewing supply store that's right next door, Malto's Express. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of jumped into the industry early on into like the this craft is on beer Route game. Twenty five, right? Uh, sure, I don't know. I think I'm it is. I think there. it is. I think I've been there before. Um, Not to Voracious, but to the Brewers Supply Store. Oh, okay. Uh, and you know, early on in the beer game, where uh, the major significant small breweries of Connecticut were New England. Uh, this predates Counterweight. Uh, the beer we'll have in the following episode, because we're recording back-to-back, so I bought a beer from one of the early, also major, significant uh, craft breweries. Voracious was kind of new to the game, and they did some remarkably interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. I remember one of the first times I ever got like a really citrusy, 
uh, fruity stone fruit style IPA was from them. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of, I'd say one of the forerunners of that kind of New England style IPA um, that at least I had encountered uh, locally. However, a friend moved uh, recently and she wanted to do a Western Connecticut beer hopping brewery extravaganza and we went to voracious black hog oec and a few other breweries a few other breweries like how i said that um and voracious and black hog especially were fundamentally subpar uh voracious that maybe just was a bad stroke of beers they had but it's one of the few times i left a beer almost completely undrank that i bought a pint well, of. we've had black hog on here before yeah, I think their, hog, granola, their granola their granola brown brown's is good the good like entry level brown like, i say it's an entry level brown you say it has that good it's good brown flex. it's good brown now yeah well let's uh let's give this one a lot of the re- it's got good reviews on beer advocate uh-huh. however per our conversation last week the beer advocate may not be the source of beer knowledge that i once thought it was dink it i never thought it was so. i'm getting a heavy heavy citrus smell from this distance well mine exploded don't like it. Don't like it. No. No, I do like it. Do I like it? I don't know. Tastes like a Sierra Nevada. Tastes like a Sierra Nevada IPA to me. I feel like it's going to be one of those nights where I don't ever know what you're actually going to feel about it. No, I know how I feel about the your movie number 61 in the next episode. No, you don't. I we do. just had a discussion that no, you don't. No, you just are challenging how I define how I feel about it. Um, but yeah, this tastes like a Sierra Nevada IPA. Sierra Nevada, folks. Nevada. Nevada. Ne- Nevada. With an A-H sound. Oh, my God. An A-3-H's. Exclamation point at the end. Nevada. Fucking hate you. <laughs> Let's move on, shall we, to, uh, I guess, the movie uh, we're going to talk about for the uh, first part of this discussion. Wow. It's a movie Ooh. that we watched. <laughs> what movie is it? Very. Ex- this is this is becoming frustrating for me this year. I'll, almost all the movies I'm intensely excited for have been remarkably <sighs> banal. Banal. That's, a, that's a way use. to put it. Um, I, we are talking about. Uh, I don't know who made who made this movie. Rob Letterman wrote, directed it. Uh, screenplay by. Three fellas, uh, Dan Hernandez, but Benji studio, Samet, like, and Derek Connolly. Which studio is this? Which uh, studio this is this is... trying to save? Uh, <laughs> well, Legendary Pictures. I think Legendary, Legendary and Marvel. Warner Brothers is doing fine. Oh, there you go. And But the Pokemon company, they're... I mean, this is the biggest media conglomerate in the, in the world. Pokemon makes more money than Marvel, makes more money than... No, maybe not anymore. Disney? Uh, we're talking about the Pokemon movie. Uh, actually, not the Pokemon movie. That was Detective already Detective Pikachu. Out. Welcome to Rhyme City, a celebration of the harmony between humans and Pokemon. Tim, your dad was a legend in this precinct. If you were anything like your dad, I remember you wanted to be a Pokemon trainer when you were young. Yeah, that didn't really work out. Someone there? Whoever you are, I know how to use this. Oh, jeez. Here we go. I know you can't understand me, but put down the stapler or I 
will electrocute you. Pokemon Detective Can we talk Pikachu. about the Pokemon movie instead? No, uh, no, we can't. The it, this is the best reviewed live action film adaptation of a video game. Yeah, I know we want to make this a quick conversation, but we can kind of talk about that. I think after like the idea of needing to break these movies out into like it's a video game adaptation, it's a comic book adaptation, it's a this adaptation, it's a that adaptation. I don't, do we need you to know. talk about that? We don't need to talk about it, but it's also like best video game adaptation means compared to what? Like Mario Brothers or Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter? Because those aren't like bad video game movies, they're just bad movies. You know what I mean? Well, no, I think that's the argument is that a video game adaptation, it's a, it's a movie that's intrinsically attached to a video game property. Yeah, um, and almost unilaterally, they have been uh, destroyed. I think like but Hitman this... and Tomb Raider have been some of the best reviewed ones, and those movies are the definition of mediocre. And I like Timothy Olyphant. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see the Hitman movie. I saw the Tomb Raider movies. And they're pretty bad. I'm. I mean, I think this movie. I didn't see the Alicia Vikander one. I no, yeah, that's right. I forgot that there was. <laughs> they remade Tomb Raider. Years after she lost well, all that her one, relevancy. That one looked better, and then I got bad reviews again. I was like, oh, I just don't know why. The, who was asking for another Tomb Raider movie? Um, I'm always asking for more Alicia. Bank I know you films. said that this. You felt this movie was banal. I actually just don't think it was very good. I mean, and I, I really wanted to. I, 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 when I was watching it, I really wanted to comment on like the idea um, that I've brought up before that kind of Owen Gleiberman talks about in his book about the idea that we've kind of moved into a movie culture in a lot of ways where we're not really trying to make stories around movies anymore. We're just trying to get all as much information up onto the screen as possible so that people that really like that thing can feel happy that they saw their favorite whatever on the screen or they got all the information, you know, they got some things right that they were hoping to get right. Um, And this, I feel like, plays right into that. The story is utterly nonsensical to the point of ridiculousness um and even more so than like because i was trying to watch it from the view of, of maybe this is ultimately trying to be a kid's film because it really tries skirts that line of somewhat nodding adult humor but also presenting a oh really there. you think all the the weird pikachu masturbating humor was yeah maybe just kind a of a little adult um but at the same time like a story that could be very digestible for a young child well, i don't know necessarily if it is but even still like well, there's I mean, much better work that my kids say they liked it but they didn't seem to really like it all that much when they were watching it but they just were kind of like oh that's that pokemon which i mean whoa look at that pokemon see the one whoa. thing and maybe the, the thing that rises it above being a bad film for me is that there is some decent amount of world building see i don't think there is i mean it's a decent amount a decent amount of of interesting slightly interesting world building in terms of this, this lightly neon faux kind of world well, so it's a very aesthetic um, world building because yeah. underneath that aesthetic that makes no sense no What's exactly the, I, exactly no i, I, meant I don't like, understand the relationship between nice these pokemon and yeah, the, the 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 relationship is really flat, and this movie's movie is flat. Like everything throughout, just doesn't do much. Well, it's all in service of just showing Pokemon's. I mean, so just to break the story down a little bit, Tim works in insurance, and his dad, who he's estranged from, works as a detective in Rhyme City, which is a city designed by Bill Nye, in which Pokemon's Bill Nye. and um, Sound like you said Bill Nye. Bill Nye, the science guy. 
Um, you know, he's it's it's what it is. I said it right. Um, <laughs> he um, could you imagine if this like made a hard left turn and became a Bill Nye Designs guy like feature? Yeah, if, and then the villain ended up being Beekman. I just would have been cool if it was an Inconvenient Truth three, and then Bill Nye was just like, there, I, get, I told you guys." How do we get Beekman in this movie? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? You yeah, Beekman. Like, yeah. Um, his dad dies. I'm doing vigorous air quotes. He goes to visit Ken Watanabe, who has just wandered into a police station and was issued a script and is just reading some, <laughs> reading and, some lines casually. And, like, and, probably, a hefty, a and probably a hefty check. We sure, help. sure, sure. They handed it to him as he was walking out on camera. Um, every, line, <laughs> every line he read, they threw him a $1,000. And they handed him another one when he walked off. Um, he wants... The weird thing was, it wasn't actually a script. He was just, that was just Ken Watanabe talking. <laughs> just, he got in the set and he's like, I think I know what I'm supposed to say here. Um, so Tim goes to the... He thought poli- it was the last Samurai sequel. Tim goes to the police station to ask... To, I, I don't know what he's doing there to tie up loose ends with his dad's stuff. Apparently, the police station has a set of spare keys to his apartment. In his father's apartment, his estranged father's apartment, he finds a Pikachu voiced by Ryan Reynolds. Um, and then there's a plot eventually to... Re- to in- transfer the minds of all the people in Rhyme City into the Pokemon. because yeah. All because Bill Nye is crippled, so everybody should be transferred into Pokemons? Um, I don't know. I mean, along the way, though, we, you know, there's holograms that tell us everything we need to know about the backstory, which is super convenient and obnoxious. Um, There's a lot of dodging of the father's face, which is also super humorous and obnoxious. Um, I don't know. It doesn't look great. I mean, the the special effects aren't, like, terrific. No. I was kind of hoping that they would be. I do like, I like the creature design. I like the kind of... I think they got got what they look like. Pokemon. Yeah. Like, anthropomorphized. Not anthropomorphized, but realisticized, I guess. Uh, Like, Psyduck's kind of fucking creepy looking. Psyduck is awesome. Yeah. And I think Pikachu looks good, too, but I think they... Well, Pikachu's cute. Psyduck's creepy looking. But Psyduck looks good. (laughs) Yeah. But there is a lot of Pokemon in this movie that don't really look very good. Like, like the Greninjas, yeah. Like, like the Greninjas. Even Mewtwo sometimes looks okay, but sometimes Mewtwo, he, he looks, looks like he was coming out of the cartoon. Yeah. Like, the other ones kind of look like they're... Mewtwo looks really plastered on yes. to, to the, yeah, yeah, to yeah. the, to the screen. It's kind of a... It's kind of... I don't want to bring this show up, but it's kind of just because I'm watching it because I have to keep up with the pop culture as a trivia person. It's like Ghost, the, the giant dire wolf in the, the Game of Thrones, just looks plastered uh, on. And does just, it? The, I yeah. don't know. That's, that's it, it. that's uh, it no more Game of Thrones stuff <laughs> because it sucks um, but yeah and it was so it kind of and it's always been bad people all of these things are happening in this movie and you, there's no real reason behind it and I know they're talking about like oh it's setting up a franchise but why don't you understand what franchise this would be setting up because if the next movie are they just going to make another Pokemon talk or is this just going to be Ryan Reynolds and Justice Smith Ryan Reynolds' brain is going to have to get transferred into... Something else? A, a Squirtle? I don't know. Um, Would that be Squirtles. as funny, Ryan Reynolds' Squirtle? I don't I mean, know. Or you get more masturbation jokes. <laughs> Maybe squirting. more. Yeah. Or you get what's, what, Melissa McCarthy into a Squirtle. There's a line. 
We are right <laughs> at it. We are right at the line. Yeah, no. Um, it was just for me. It was um, a George H. W. Bush quote that said, "What's wrong with being a boring guy, kind of guy, and everything?" I think that's it's the worst kind of movie. In that I've forgotten about it already. Um, yeah, and I just it's it was it's not really an engaging passage of time. There's it's cool. I would imagine if I was really into Pokemon. Like heavily into Pokemon, well, I would have. Com- I would have. I would have liked. No, I would have liked to see these Pokemon, but I don't think I would have been particularly awestruck by it. Well, I mean, there's. I, mean, I don't think po- huge Pokemon nerds. I don't know any, but I don't think all of them are losing their mind. And even like reading the Reddit comments about it, it's been like it's really cool seeing that Pokemon, but it's just these really cool Pokemon doing some Pokemon stuff in a movie that's not that engaging. Well, I mean, it's one of these things where like there's how many Pokemon? There's like eight hundred something Pokemon's. Okay, and I guess not all of them. Did you say Pokemon's? Pokemans. Sorry. Pokemon. Pokemon is the plural of Pokemon. Pokemans. It's like Lego. Are you gonna get, I'm going to pick up my Legos. Le- I do say Legos. You Poke- know why? Lego po- company? Because go fuck yourself. Pokemai. I think Here we talk about this? No. The Lego. So Lego. We're going to go off on that little thing. Lego came out a few years back angrily saying it's not called Legos. They're Lego. The plural of Lego is Lego. Okay, yeah, because like they're that. like trying to do brand ownership. It's like go fuck yourself. I'm tired of this brand. We're ownership still buying stuff. your goddamn fucking product. So who gives a shit? There's 800 Pokemon. Okay, I don't understand why in some of these scenes I'm seeing like a half a dozen Charmanders. I, because, you know what I mean? Just make them another one. Could you imagine how much the? I, mean, it's, I think it's a budget thing. It's a 150 million dollar movie, sure, but. You know how much money that would cost to create different models of like a hundred and fifty different type of Pokemon? I don't fucking care. Like, but that's what you do. You know what I mean? What's do the you really point think they should have made a two hundred and fifty million dollar Pokemon movie? If let's say here's the thing: if they're gonna make this movie like this, then do it fucking right. Or you know what I mean? And or don't, reduce it. Or reduce it. You or know, reduce like make it. it a little more enclosed. Well, I mean, so make it a hateful eight with <laughs> you know Charizard. They and all have a Pokemon. Yeah, Snorlax. Playing the role of, of Demian Bachar. I am... Um, or no, Channing Tatum. It's one of the things like... Snorlax is Channing Tatum. So they spend all that money on that Torterra scene, which just doesn't go anywhere. They're like, oh no. So Psyduck deals with the Greninjas by getting freaked out and, is, and, and exploding. But then that wakes up the Torterras and they're just like running around all over the place. Like, oh no, it's the Torterras. They're really big. And then the Torterras go back to sleep and that's the end of it. Yeah, this movie... It shuttles along. That, that's the problem. Is it's like it's so on track too. It's so. It was a good idea. Yeah, no, it's it's but a great. But it's just not executed it's a well at all. Concept. And it is one of those things where like everyone was incredibly excited because those trailers were great. The trailers were awesome. Yeah. And they give you a sense of a, a huge world that is just is not there. Mm-hmm. And even so, you accept possibly that you can't have this big world because of the money issue or because of whatever. Then do something interesting with your story. Don't do like a really tamed down Brian Reynolds doing what Ryan yeah. Reynolds has done for 15 years, waiting part nine, and you know, have a story that twists and turns in the ways that or just don't really have such a complicated story. It's not that complicated though. It's, it's really it's not even convoluted. It's just like. It is boring. It's, late nineties child noir. Yeah, Watching it's Agent a, Cody Banks, part oh, seventeen. I would have loved to Frankie Muniz's appearance in this. Um, it's good job, Mario. I held myself from making an inappropriate joke. Oh, good. Um, on the subject of of all of these movies, though, like I guess we came under fire 
And I'm saying it with a smile on my face for our, like, av- my Avengers opinion. So, funnily enough, we went to see this movie at Criterion. And at the Criterion, you know, it's not, like, w- w- laid out very well. So, in through the windows, you can see the movie sometimes. So, um, when we were leaving, Avengers was on, and I was watching it. Me and my son were just, like, watching Avengers through the window. And I was like, nah, I wish I was watching Avengers. I wish we had just spent, like, all of that time just, like, watching Avengers. Because it was, the, you know, the scene where the Hulk snaps his fingers with the Infinity Stones. So it's like, all this looks good. All of this, it's not my thing. I guess it's apparently somebody else's thing. Um, but that is a movie that knows what it is and executes to that point. Where Pokemon, I'm not sure 100% knew what it was. And so it had no idea how to execute what it wanted to do. And so it just did whatever, um, including like having an ending that is derivative of, um, you know, Big Hero Six and The Incredibles Two with like the mind controlling device on your head. You know what I mean? It's just it's just stupid. It's the whole thing is derivative of a bunch of other way better movies that look better, that are more complicated, more engaging. I guess don't have the mass appeal that like watching a bunch of Pokemon's on screen has, but are just more fulfilling ex- movie experiences, which but, this is not. To be fair, we did get to see Darren Aronofsky's ex-girlfriend be a Pokemon. Who was Darren Aronofsky's ex-girlfriend? Miss, Miss Norman. That turns out to be the Ditto. Oh. Okay. Oh, who? Suki Waterhouse? Yeah. I thought that was going to be one of the members of Team Rocket at first. And I was like, oh, Team Rocket's in this? That'll be awesome. Yeah, no. But I think everyone was really excited for something. It was like a pink-haired, a pink-haired I'm surprised, woman just hanging out. I'm surprised there wasn't like a like a post-credit scene about yeah, Team Rocket. Who cares? He gives a shit. This conversation's going on too long as it is. No, it is. Exactly. This, this movie's boring. It's not exciting. Um, just, if you want fucking interesting world-building... Because you thought this was gonna be good world building, go go see the fucking John Wick movies, which are bad. Or too. just go, you know what? I'm gonna and I'm gonna say this. this you need to go see a summer just movie. Go see Avengers again. Like if you yeah. really just want to be like engrossed in a thing, and you have a penchant for liking these types of movies, just go see fucking Avengers. Who cares? And also, yeah, go see Avengers just so it beats uh, Avatar. Yeah, we want Avatar to go fucking down. Yeah. All right, so we will be right back with my number sixty-two. Welcome back. My number 62 is a movie that we are going to be talking about later uh, in the year. Not too much later, uh, maybe a dozen episodes um, from now or so. So we'll kind of confine our discussion of it to uh, my own personal relationship to it. Um, and then any like further analysis we'll do, we'll do later when we do it, when it appears on Mario's list. Um, to that end, my number 62 is Hayao Miyazaki's uh, 2001 masterpiece, Spirited Away. In worlds seen and unseen, where spirits are transformed <laughs> and sorcerers rule. <laughs> the witch Ibaba controls you by stealing your name. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. Your name belongs to me now. One girl's future depends on her judgment. Aren't you getting wet out there? I'll leave the door open for you. <gasps> her courage. It's Haku! He's hurt! Haku! Haku! 
loyalty. Haku helped me before. Now I want to help him. Everyone, I need my shoes and clothes, please. And remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihiro. Ah, Spirited Away won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature that year. Um, for a while, it was the highest grossing um, film in um, Japan's history. Um, I think Disney owns the rights to it now, which is a bummer um, that Disney owns all this Studio Ghibli shit. Um, but Disney owns everything that's animated. Now every single DVD of these things comes with like an introduction Not happy from, feet. Do they own happy from feet? John Lasseter. Oh, God. John Lasseter, get the fuck out of here. It's just like, it's in subtitles, hugs you. Ugh, yeah, Ugh, John Lasseter. Um, so I got to uh, Miyazaki through, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I got there through Akira, and I wanted more Akira, and there wasn't any more Akira, and so um, I was just looking for stuff like Akira, um, and uh, the Nausicaa Valley of the Wind graphic novels, um, that Miyazaki um, wrote and illustrated came up. Um, and then there was, I found out there was a movie for Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. And then I found out that they had just released apparently a movie in that everyone considered a masterpiece um, of cinema on DVD. So I went out and I watched it and that was spirited away. Um, but I don't remember too much about like the, obviously it was on DVD. It was, you know, probably in my bedroom. You know, was I don't know, twenty one at the time. Um, I have no idea what I was doing, but um, a lot of things stuck with me. Um, the entrance when they first enter the amusement park, as they see it, um, that shot down that narrow corridor. That first when they kind of go in and they enter that that station. Um, those really still almost photographic images of like the fountain and the benches and just all these things just kind of sitting there it was unlike any other animated movie I had um, encountered up to that point um, and then the no face obviously just is a, one of the genius characters in the film and then you get to the train sequence um, and there's like a YouTube video that is not very good but it its title is really good, and it says that, like, you know, the train sequence is one of the great scenes in film history, and I, I think I have to agree. Um, the music is perfect. There are very few blues in cinema that look like the blue of that sky, the blue of that ocean, um, that convey the same complex but fully realized emotions as that train sequence does. Um... And then the 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 scene the sequence at Zaniba's house is such and its stillness is in stark contrast to the kind of chaos of the scenes that we just witnessed back at the bathhouse. Um, and I don't know I didn't go into like the details of like what this movie's about or like any of that, but we'll we'll do all that stuff. We'll do that stuff when we talk about it with yours. I think the thing I want to say the reason this movie I mean this movie's on my list it would be on my list anyway. Um, because of all those things. It's just a wonderful movie. I love it very much. Um, but it's become like a more complicated movie for me in the sense that the films of Hayao Miyazaki are now very important to my kids. Um, or we had my son in the birthing center that we had him. There was a um, TV to DVD player and my daughter watched 
Ponyo and Kiki while in the other room my wife was having a baby. And I could hear Ponyo and Kiki's delivery service like through the wall while my wife was trying to have this baby. Um, my kids dressed up as Kiki and Gigi that year for Halloween. We've been to, um, you know, when they have the Ghibli Fest every year, which is kind of like a bullshit festival, but is an awesome way to see like these movies that came out 20 years ago on like a huge screen with a always a sold out group of people. We've paid our $50 in tickets to go see these movies. They're, they're huge movies. Um, our family is very attached to them. Totoro and um, all of these movies. You know, my kids have had stuffed Totoros their whole life. And um, I think the complicated thing for me now is that my relationship to these movies has shifted. And I don't know if... I think this might be something... And I don't, I don't want to sound like a dickhead when I say this. And I'm not saying this to belittle anybody that doesn't have kids. But it's interesting when I think you become a parent and you start looking at these things solely through the eyes of your kids... So, my admiration for this movie has changed a little bit. We just watched this on Tuesday night um, for this podcast, and I wanted, I wanted to make sure that they, they watched it with me. And they both just kind of sat there. My daughter's seen it before, but my son hadn't seen it. And um, they both just kind of sat there, just dumbfounded. Like, they didn't really know what to do with themselves. They, they just kind of ate up everything that was happening. Um, they weren't scared in the places that I kind of thought that they'd be scared. They weren't confused. They didn't have any questions. They just let it kind of wash over them. And I think the thing that I'm interested in now, and the thing that, the reason why there's like, I think a question mark next to all of these movies is that I didn't really get exposed to this kind of stuff when I was a kid. Um, I know you have a much richer film biography than I do. Um, I picked this stuff up when I was 21, and I was really kind of marveling at the artistry on display, where now I want to see having shown these films to my kids I want to see where it goes you know what I mean like I want to see what having seen Spirited Away inspires in them you know creatively or artistically or any of this stuff and maybe that's too presumptuous to assume that it will but I find them so amazing I wonder if they also find them amazing and if they do find them amazing how that inspires them going forward in their life. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. I, and it's, it's a thing, it's something I think about kind of all the time. Like, what are we going to, where does this go? Like stuff that we, so we just, me and my daughter just watched a couple of scenes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And she was like, just dying of laughter, like at the black Knight part. Um, I don't know how many nine year olds in her school have seen like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What does it do to her? Did I just give her Monty Python and the Holy Grail and now I have to wait to see like what that does? I think the reason I showed it to her is because her sense of humor aligns to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. She loves that stuff. Um, but now I'm, sh- now I'm sharing it. You know what I mean? I think one of the interesting things about the Pivotal film list is that like, I don't know how you feel about this, but these are like my movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like I own them and Spirited Away now is a movie that I feel like I don't own anymore. Like I'm sharing it. I'm sharing it with them. And the full realization of what it means to me is not going to be known until they're older, until I can see where they end up. Um, and that's really interesting to me um, as a dad. And I think that's, I think that's 
from my perspective, that's really kind of all I want to say about this. Do you do you have anything you want to add before we kind of turn to your sixty two, and then we'll I mean, take this back up in a you know? It's hard. I think this is going to be the big conversation because anything I want to bring up right now, because we're we have we have such a soon discussion on it. You know, we're we're it's three, not, three and a half months away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for having a discussion on this film, that I'm just going to wait. Um, okay, and, which is which is. Which is totally and, and my fine. and your connection to it, I I just obviously that same connection isn't there for me. I I like this movie on a much more intellectual level. Right. Um, I definitely don't like it because of my kids, because <laughs> they are none. Although today, some woman wished me a happy Father's Day, and I looked at her, and instead of saying the appropriate thing, which I think would be like thank you or whatever, I said I'm not. I don't have kids. Well, it's not even Father's Day. Yeah, I don't know. Not even kind of close to Father's Day. I mean, it's after Mother's Day, so that's the next one, I guess. Memorial Day. Do you wish people happy Memorial Day? I, I don't. But. Yeah. Okay. To show you how far away from <laughs> the, that sort of connection I am, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but I think that's the great thing about the Miyazaki films overall is there, is there is kind of like a profound connection you can have to them mm. in um, – you know, your own unique way. And, you know, what is it? Four of the five highest grossing Japanese films, uh, Japanese produced films in Japan are Miyazaki movies. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and Miyazaki bar none is probably considered the greatest animated director ever, I would say. Um, Just because he's able to create such intricately human film. Well, we were um, talking about world building just a second ago. There's a depth to even though we like we don't know a lot in spirited away like going into it you feel like you know everything yeah exactly as you're looking at it you're just like well i understand this until you don't understand it anymore the, the sheer amount of nonverbal storytelling that miyazaki is able to to communicate which is an essential component of the animated media you know that that oftentimes is, is kind of glistened over in animation is you know there's there's an intrinsic mastery um well, because in people much think... the same way, I look at Miyazaki as being so influenced by, um, you know, Ozu. Like sure, he's, yeah, yeah. he's the animator. He's the animated Ozu. Ozu's like demand of control over the mise-en-scene. Um, you know, everything needing to have some sort of purpose. Why I was a bull positioned here. Miyazaki is that to a high extent, and, mm-hmm. and you don't get like really in-depth pursuits of mise-en-scene in in animated feature to me because of the fact that you know what you want to convey emotionally through the image you're going to do very blatantly whereas Miyazaki's really intricately weaving small things into his film and that's going to be more like what I discuss later on right. but it, it just connects to to your point of, of that human element and I think that's why he has such a profound impact why nobody says Miyazaki's not for me you know well yeah I mean and that's the thing like I when could I, you imagine if a person said that I would not know that person anymore do we like is that like the the the? Do we put them in water and see if they float? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We put carrots on their noses and just assume they're witches. Um, is that a thing? That's in, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, no, anyone that says like it's not for him probably hasn't seen like very much of like a Miyazaki movie. Let's maybe see like Howl's Moving Castle. It's like it's, it's like the more kind of passe sort of his films. Right. Um, I mean, passe. But to the extent of, of being his most commercial, but but I think it's why this movie is interesting because it's I appreciated it in the same way that you did for like ten years, which is like purely on an intellectual level, and then I started 
feeding them to my kids. And then I'm, it's all like emotional now. Like it's turned and I can see. So who do I feed this film to? Do I just find a child off the street and be like, watch this Miyazaki the, the movie? The parking guy. He looks like he can use some enlightening up. The guy that wanted $5 from me before. You just got to tell him. I did, okay. but he still wanted his five. He still wanted his $5. Yeah, even after? No, but he asked me for it, and I've been here a lot of times. Oh. If he had seen some Miyazaki, he might, he might have a lightened heart. I think so. I think so. We'll have a, a deep, deep Miyazaki conversation. Well, maybe not right. super. Maybe not a super deep Miyazaki conversation in fourteen or so weeks, because we're going to have another Miyazaki conversation after that. Yeah. Um, is this your only Miyazaki? Feature? Yeah, because this even this one trumps for me. Oh no, I can't. I don't say trumps. This one. Um, yeah, I'll just say whatever. this one. Biden's for you. No. <laughs> yeah. This one. This one Warren's for me. Um, no. This one De Blasio's for me. No, I can't go. I can't keep doing that. Um, all of the other ones. I think it's it's artistry is that much greater, and its depth of feeling is equal to that artistry. I would say, yeah, my higher ranked movie just has a much more emotionally profound connection. Sure, and like I could, I would see your point, being that it's the first one that I ever showed my daughter, and that and my she, higher ranked one. Yeah, and she just glommed onto it. Well, that is that is um, the penultimate. Sure, and kids I, movie. I understand that. But this movie for me, emotions and intellectually for me is just like the umbrella that is like the domed space that is over all of these things. No, that that makes sense. They all seem like they could exist in this universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is the, it's not like this movie exists in like Kiki's universe or this movie exists in. Ponyo's universe, or this movie exists in like Castle in the Sky's universe. Like they exist in this universe. And that's a weird, like, vague distinction to make. But if you've seen all the movies, you're kind of like, yeah, I get it. There's just, there's just, it's everywhere. This, this shit is everywhere. Huh, that's 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 a fair point. You know, that, that's a strong point. Um, but yeah, I guess it's it's an unfortunate that we're gonna have to cut this conversation short, but. We'll have a much lengthier conversation, as I said, soon. But uh, we will keep this family-friendly episode going. Um, you want to talk about a PG yeah. and a G-rated film with my number 62 right after the break. My number 62 this week is, is, a, is an interesting one. For the longest time, I would have almost considered this to be my number one pivotal film. Uh, just because it had a hugely emotional impact on me when I was watching it. Uh-huh. Uh, but as the t- years have gone by, and, and I guess I've I've grown and kind of moved away from the catharsis of violence and needing the idea of sacrifice and bloodletting and, and the horrific parts of humanity to, to show... The decency of people, I've lost that with this film, and instead only have kind of a a trickling estimation of why I loved it so much. It's it's still for me a, a gorgeously at times shot film. The, the score um, is something that I think really set off a trend in scores for a while. That kind of well, chanting, uh, at least with score would then. 
The Mist. I mean, every, films like The Mist and whatnot would yeah. definitely be influenced by by the score of this. Everyone film. loves the score. I don't understand why the score is like. Who cares? Um, and, but definitely the the uh, makeup effects and whatnot still well, stand yeah. today. Sure. Um, but the emotional affect that this movie has, her effect that this movie has on me is lost. And now it's kind of it's an interesting film to discuss. My number sixty-two is the two thousand four American biblical drama directed by uh, well beloved Mel Gibson, American the hero, Mel yeah. the Passion of the Christ. He will look on until Maha Amenimbi. The Passion of the Christ is um, the tale of the last 12 hours of Christ's life. His uh, torture and crucifixion um, has depicted... uh, you know, largely from the gospel, using some of the apocry- uh, apocrypha, apocrypha, um, uh, such as the Friday of Sorrows and um, some of the apparition stories, um, you know, attached to uh, Catholic, I don't want to say Catholic myth, but attached to Catholic uh, history. The Catholics liked it. Um, it's almost like a Catholic attitude more so than it's a Catholic history. I would agree. Uh, when this movie first came out, I saw it with a very... Um, skeptical uh, agnostic friend of mine um and it's it was interesting because we were both kind of profoundly moved by it and she was profoundly moved by the violence of it which i think was the ultimately the intent and i was moved by the idea of interspersing scenes of of horrendous violence which i still now looking back see as going too far um bar none and which is kind of the the trend of mel gibson films i think braveheart's the only one of his films where he knew how to even tone down the violence to an appropriate war level well because it seemed contextually relevant to yeah exactly drawn quartering somebody but even that's slightly artist not artistic but slightly um done in a uh assumed way assumed and not it's, it's not so graphically depicted um the the thing that connected to me was you know during the torture scenes interspersing um that scourging and, and the cleaning up the blood with some of like his grace giving and the, and the uh-huh. feet washing those things got to me um but it's interesting now for me and and this is a pivotal pivotal film because this is the, oh, the first time I, I truly got angry at, at the the criticisms of the movie the the correlation of this film, um, 2004 would be the year in which I believe the, the torture porn kind of genre name would, would be established with, with uh, Saul, and then would later be used the following year with Hostel and whatnot, and this would become known as kind of a torture porn film, a, a film that could be relished um, by you know, Christian believers in its, in its violence. And at the time, I was I was angry with that because I wasn't like that's not the point the point is you know even in the face of tremendous adversity and hate and the hatefulness of man um, 
you know, there, there's still some good in people, but ultimately there's still, you know, the attempt to rise above that. Uh-huh. Um, and looking back, it's, it's, it's a philosophy I believe in still. Like, it's a philosophy I move myself with still in the sense of, you know, not relishing in, in the violence of that or relishing in the sacrifice, I should say, but more in the, the rising above the... the um, turning the other cheek style philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a pivotal film for me in, in that it was the time where I really vehemently felt the need to defend something, not because of my, be- because of my beliefs, I guess, uh, and not necessarily because of my Christian beliefs, but because of my, what I critically took from the film. And looking back on it, I, I've revisited this f- film every six to seven years and I am removing myself from it because it does seem to wallow in the violence it seems to wallow in in the I mean the sacrifice image of of the Christ story is tremendously important it's an inherent part of it but I think this movie does in my opinion a lot of negative work and focusing so much in that and focusing so much in the entire ideology of relishing the horror in life and the the confrontation uh-huh. and the challenges you'll face and does not do a good job of really promoting the ideas that it tries to do in moments but then loses of you know being a good person in spite of everything else yeah um beyond that i still think that this movie it's it's definitely a remnant of the mid two thousands in terms of its imagery, um, but there's still some shockingly great looks, um, great images in the film. Uh, there there's a hallway, a scene where Christ, you know, the Jim Cave- Jim Caviezel's Christ, Jim Caviezel's Christ. That sounds weird to say. Christ is carrying he the would cross, be fine with that. Um, and you see it down an alleyway, and it's kind of in the, it's kind of uh, yeah. mirrors. Uh, I can't remember what Renaissance painting it is, but um, You'd be, it's I a safe bet that it's a Caravaggio painting because would, they I were think, big I think into the Caravaggio. A, I think it's Caravaggio, but I just didn't want to say that. Yeah. Um, the, the score, uh, like you, like you, you can argue, it's, I mean, it, it just, sets, sets I, off a tone of, of uh, you know, definitely carries the the sort of gravity that Gibson's looking for, and also would end up being replicated numerous times over the next like. To 10 when years. I talk about score, I'm just talking about the fact that I think that Peter Gabriel's score for The Last Temptation of Christ does a better job of this exact thing with more. Um, I don't want to say it's not obviously not period sounds, but with like um, culturally representative sounds and much more drama and all that other stuff. So yeah. I would actually I keep I kept imagining what this movie would be like with that Peter Gabriel. Last Temptation of Christ score over it instead of like the big fan fairy score that is you know here, and um, you know so sort of images of that like like I said the makeup effects are still tre- tremendous but just overall has a picture of what it's trying to represent um, you know I think those first twenty to thirty minutes are, are really still solid the entire um, you know the the in, in the garden I guess in the um, you know, you know, Christ's begging of, of forgiveness and begging of the burden off his shoulders still really works and is a great depiction of that story. 
Um, but then afterwards, it just it dwells too much into a philosophy that I think has kind of defined uh-huh. a lot of modern Christian thought, which is this heavy persecution uh, yeah. complex. Um, and it's it, it kind of set the tone for the message of what I think is now like the pure flicks ideology. And I wouldn't really want to blame Mel Gibson for that or say that this movie's doing that. Yeah. But it definitely inspired to me uh, a lot of wrong messages well, here's what that I would, would come. Here's what I would say. And I don't want to step on your toes if you're not done. No, no. I, I would just say the, the movies that like God's not dead or um, the, the anti-abortion movie that just came out don't exist without this this existing first. This kind of yeah opened up the floodgates. And, and I don't think that's the intention ever. Here's what I would um, Here's to what, those type of films, which I think are hugely detrimental, not just to well, religion, but detrimental to you know any sort of <laughs> metaphysical or whatever philosophical conversation a person wants to have. Political beliefs aside, in regarding those movies, those movies are propaganda. I no. mean, and they're 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 financed by uh, interests that have um, a stake in whether or not, like you know, I mean, this Lance, movie helps to eradicate. Lance, Lance Reddick is actually making a comedy now about two guys who don't, who are filmmakers who are just trying to make a Christian propaganda film because they're not good enough filmmakers to do anything else. Is that true? That's yeah. awesome. Um, and this idea. is, uh, you know, this is not bad. This is definitely somebody who had a significant, uh, I don't know, well, you know, nudge, nudge passion uh, for the project. Like, Mel Gibson doesn't direct a lot of things. And the things he directs, you can definitely tell he's giving 110% to. Yeah. Um, I mean, my feeling of it is, and I've kind of had, I've moved in the opposite direction. I, I also saw, like, opening night, fully packed theater. Um, it's the, a weird It's a weird experience to see this kind of movie in a fully packed theater. It was, because there was a lot of different things happening. I was largely indifferent to the message, because by then I had gotten over any, you know, Christian beliefs that I had. Um, I'm... I'm not anti-Christianity. I'm I I am a spiritual person. I have a, a spiritual philosophy in place. I'm just my views don't merge towards like the organized feelings of of Christianity, like the, regarding the, the, the Bible current, or anything. The current organized feelings, like the everything that they regardless. Blah blah blah. blah, blah. I, get, no, we're not going to get into that conversation. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to have. Not, yeah, um, my feeling about we it, will have that conversation. If you ever want to hear me and Tom have that conversation. See us at an Archie Moore's or a <laughs> We'll get a Kickstarter going and you can donate we'll not, to go we'll to not Archie Moore's podcast. Yeah. We'll yeah, we'll get if we get a Kickstarter going, we'll give out our uh, GoFundMe or a uh, Patreon. We'll have a prize of of flying somebody out. I mean, it'll be financed by that Patreon. And then, <laughs> you know, we'll have some buffalo chicken nachos and some two roads beers. And we'll then talk, we'll after we'll three of those each we'll have that conversation. Yeah. Um, then you'll immediately want to go home. Or they want to stay. Yeah. Maybe we convert them. Um, we should change this. What would we be converting them to? Me and you have two just gender- different... <laughs> we just convert them to the... I don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> um, I actually feel this is... A- mud flood. We convert them to the mud oh, flood. Oh, <laughs> man. That's, yeah, that's the in-between state that we exist in. Um, I actually feel... Uh, remember when... After the house that Jack built came out... And a lot of people were complaining about the idea that it seemed to be a very personal movie. That it wasn't a movie that, like, needed to be seen by anybody else. It was literally a movie that Lars von Trier seemed to make for himself, just for the sake of making it. And I kind of get the impression, after watching this, that that's kind of what's happening here. That I think a lot of the Christian... um, 
the collective Christian ideology wanted this movie to speak directly to a fundamental universal Christian ideal, and I don't think it does. No, it doesn't. I think it speaks directly to Mel Gibson's personal feelings towards what happened in the last 12 hours of Christ's life. And in that, from that perspective, um, I think it's really like a kind of successful, like a very successful movie. I actually find that the first half hour is the worst part of the movie. Um, the violence I've kind of been able to rationalize up to a point. You know what I mean? Every one of these hyper-violent scenes goes way too far. The dragging of the cross um, goes on literally for ages. Um, but like, even, even to point to something that Roger Ebert said, he said in his initial review of it, he said it's a personal message movie of the most radical kind, attempting to recreate events of personal urgency to Gibson. Um, he's put his artistry and fortune at the service of his personal conviction and belief. Um, and I think when... Not to speak for Mel Gibson, I wouldn't. I think that this is what we're looking at. This is how he perceives these events. Through whatever research he's done, through whatever reading he's done, through whatever thinking he's done, he has uh, reconciled these emotions and thoughts and theories within him, and he's come out with this. And it, the fact that it looks remarkably like some of his other movies in the way that the main character is, you know, tortured um, almost to, you know, the brink of death or in this movie death, um, I think perhaps could be synonymous with how he perceives the world. And his Christian beliefs are perhaps influencing those other those other movies or those other portrayals or those other choices that he's made. Um, but to your point with the violence, so my problem with it is not so much like when they're whipping him, even though that was the initial problem I had with the movie when I first saw it. I I remembered it as being a lot worse than it was, um, which I I didn't think that was possible, but I (laughs) I remembered it being way worse than it actually was when I rewatched it to do this. Um, the crucifixion scene is like abominable it is almost to the uh, and i kind of made a note of it it takes it almost and in some ways does change my feelings about what i perceived mel gibson to be doing because it just it turns christ into like remember in seven when they go to the house of that guy like um the pedophile who John Doe has been keeping alive with drugs for like a year and he's just kind of like a corpse in the bed and then they shine the light in his eyes and he wakes up. He looks exactly like that. A couple of parts when he's, when he's, when they're nailing him to that cross. Fucking exactly. And it moves this, it moves the suffering. And I want, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this. It moves the suffering too far. So, and you're a Christian, so you can, you know, correct my interpretation of this. Christ's suffering is supposed to be representative of him taking on the sins of mankind. Yeah, right? exactly. The suffering is so... He suffers so much in this movie that it... Be, and, it's, and Jim Caviezel does such an amazing fucking job. I actually think it's a pretty... It's, it's unfortunate that he didn't get recognized more 
for this performance because it's crazy. And speaking Aramaic throughout the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. it is crazy what he like puts out onto the screen. It becomes it's so much that it becomes that it becomes Jesus' suffering. It's not my suffering. It never was my suffering, but it's not your suffering anymore. And even if I believed it, it wouldn't be mine either because it's just so his. He's been destroyed. You know what I mean? And it's moved past metaphor to something else. Well, I think to I something think... way more visceral and real um, that can't be explained with like, well, he's taking that on. It's like, well, he's taking up. He's taking a lot on. Like he didn't need to do. He didn't need to take that much on. Well, I think that's the idea. The idea is is taking on the 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 totality of of pain and suffering. But you could have illustrated the totality of pain and suffering with much less visceral displays of violence. And that's that's what's interesting to me. Is I don't know if if especially now in retrospect of his two follow up films, if Gibson's the, the man for this movie. Because he's he's a incredibly violent dude. I mean, in terms of his filmmaking, at the very least, um, you know, Apocalyptico is a pretty gory movie. Maybe not extremely so, but Hacksaw Ridge is. I mean, you want to talk about? I already talked about this in the podcast before. I think we talked about Hacksaw Ridge. I think we've Maybe just kind of mentioned we, it here and there. Yeah, I can't remember if it was like a bar conversation or a podcast conversation. That movie goes way too fucking far for me. Like but that beyond movie's, that movie's like uh, it's intense. But it's but there's the part where like they're, they're carrying the torso has the shield and whatnot, well, yeah. and it's trying to show like the, the atrocities of war and like how horrible a situation it is. Mm-hmm. But it seems like Mel Gibson needs to do it in this really kind of beat way like like in a way of 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 showing the meat of man and showing the flesh of man and i think he's so desperately trying to encapsulate the totality of sin right. bearing down upon the body of christ and you know god taking on all that sin that he just does it to a point where he doesn't realize that he is doing it for himself he's doing it for what he to the point where he elicits a reaction to a point where i feel like it elicits a reaction from mo gibson Versus where it elicited reaction for right. everybody. And that's an interesting thing because you talked before about like how you like the idea that the violence is interspersed with moments of, of, of grace. You know what I mean? And I think my – I think to that point, my problem is that – At a certain point, that goes away. and it's Mel become... Gibson makes it seem like – because perhaps that's how he perceives it – that – his grace is only achieved through this massive amount of suffering. And it's, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's always those, this... Like, this suffering justifies the Last Supper conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, and... su- this, sacri- this suffering justifies, in some way, the Sermon on the Mount. Which can't be true. Because that's just... That's not what... Maybe that's true for Mel Gibson, but that's not universally true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, I, it's, 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 it's kind of comes up with that idea of maybe the kind of the perception maybe of Catholic guilt um, so far in the sense that you know it's Mel Gibson himself, his hands that are putting the nails in during that the scene of, of the crucifixion, and and you know trying to bear the guilt of like men and we all did this sort of thing, which I don't know. It's, it's not necessarily I mean, I the it. right. I get it too, but, but it, it, yeah, it loses. Continue. It would lose an audience because I, I do think it loses some people. If you're trying to speak to an echo chamber, sure, it works there. But if you're trying to speak to a wider audience of, regardless of your beliefs, if the hostility of, of Christ is, is real or whatnot, and 
a person like this went through that, you know, like this atrocity that, that men are able to commit onto one another. And, and, you know, that sort of story, um, it, it does lose that with the, the sheer intensity of it. And I, I get the intent. I get his intent of what he's trying to do, but I, I agree that it reaches a certain point where it doesn't necessarily wallow in it, but it loses focus on appealing to an audience beyond you know, a certain veil. Well, I think it loses focus on what the meaning of that suffering is or what that suffering represents. It just, it it just becomes, becomes suffering about, unto itself. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and the suffering isn't so much about redemption, and that's why, like, the idea of it being interspersed, I, I enjoyed of, you know, in the face of all this, this is the purpose for it. You know, this is the reason behind it. And to that extent, it does eventually become just suffering unto itself. You know, just it, it is one on top of the other, which is the idea of, you know, the, the, those, those gospel stories do show the violence one unto another. Um, but, you know, it is preceded by chapters of, of, of you know, immense, turning the other cheek, yeah, of exactly. washing the yes. feet of a, another person, of and there's um, not enough of that in paying taxes, of the most violent thing Christ is doing being overturning some tables and whipping around some, you know, people who are selling goods in a, you know, sacred ground, you know, a back, a, a fundamental four books just filled of, you know, peace, you know, and the idea of mm. peace and, and forgiveness. And that's kind of lost when it's just 12 out, you know, 30 minutes at that point. And, and, you know, after, before that you'd had the 30 minute, you know, scourging scene of, of this, you know, and it just, it is, solid of that you know it's 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 a moving of that and and the message for somebody who's not so familiar with it's kind of lost then i agree and and that's maybe my 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 point to where it loses me now in the sense that you know i came into it very profoundly knowing like you have to know the stories to get this but if that's the point the avengers (laughs) but if that's the point um the audience you're speaking to already believes that and already knows it uh, to, to, I mean, hopefully. I mean, obviously, they mostly don't because they misinterpret a bunch of stuff. Um, that's directly said in the text. But blah, 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 who am I to say? You know, like, <laughs> allowing foreigners in and whatnot. Um, but... You're making assumptions here, Mario. <laughs> it may be correct, but they're making assumptions. Um... But yeah, if people don't have enough money to support themselves, you support them. It's really weird. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, if if that's all you're going for, I think those people know it, and then you don't necessarily need to make that movie. Instead, just to repeat the beliefs. But if you're trying to reach an audience like like my friend there, you know, who was there and like not really a believer, kind of agnostic, still emotionally moved by it, um, eventually get to a point of it just being, oh, this person suffered a tremendous amount. And why would that happen? And yeah, that, that's a good point to make. A good point to make in terms of anti-violence and the, the fucked up things we've done in the past. Uh-huh. Like the fact that crucifixion was ever a thing. Or that the electric chair was recently a thing. Or anything of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the point he's obviously trying to make. He's making a very grounded Christian statement. And, and in doing that, you lose like the fundamental aspect of Christianity, which is... Grace and forgiveness in the face of adversity and and and, and the face of, of yeah, a dark the, world. The aver- adversity becomes un, like, transcendable. Yeah, and it, and it becomes point. a point. It becomes a point where you don't feel sorry or feel. 
ones? Feel, feel, feel the, the attackers are the people committing these are, are pathetic um, or in the sense of, of not misunderstood, but in the sense of these people don't know what they're doing and instead become something like you hate these people. Well, that's the thing. And that's so, 100% against the point. And he's, you know, he obviously says they don't know, they don't know what they're doing. Um, but it's clear that the priests know what they're doing. It's clear that the Roman soldiers... And that's a part that bugs me, too, is, like, how much they revel doing. in it, you know? Right, and it's forever, and it's, like, I, we get it. Like, how many scenes of the soldiers laughing and beating him do we really need? Like, I don't know how and the many idea, we need. And the idea of the Christian message is, like, this is a Neville, this has to happen because, you know, it's destined to th- happen. But when you present it in such a way where they're reveling in it, you do end up creating villains that you're supposed to hate. And you create villains... You're not supposed to create human villains that you're supposed to hate it, it, to me at least in the christian text right. you're supposed to be like these are people who don't know what they're doing well that's why i think it's funny that like some of the criticism of this movie being anti-semitic um like got a lot of traction in the sense that if you watch the movie like for a while the jewish priests are horrible to him but then for the rest of the movie it's just roman it's just the romans shitting all over him and then you see the priests kind of like even like them looking like oh yeah whoa. i mean there, there's no i mean that's the same thing that we there's just, a couple parts like later on where you see the the, the, the pharisees kind of like looking like like well, no that's like, need this. like there's a couple like that's too far yeah i mean every and, this and is, i think that was like the intent i think the intent yeah. was like they didn't realize it was gonna go to this level sort of thing or you know they were kind of like into it. like then they kind of realized and i think he's trying to make that point of it's a, it's a dawning and a realization of of their sin um but it's lost when you know you tell it in such a structured film narrative mm-hmm. um where the entire history of film has showed people doing this sort of stuff are bad guys and you hate them and you want to see them defeated and dead you know every other film that's done that has you know led to that message well, and that the message of this story should be the entirely opposite the of opposite, that. yeah i mean so from a film perspective just a couple of questions like what did you Looking back on it, what do you think of like some of the performances? Like on it, do any of them stand out to you besides like Jim Caviezel? Um, because I thought, I mean, I thought Monica Bellucci's casting was a weird choice until like the very last scene, which or the very last image that kind of um, you know that tableau that's created of of Mary holding Jesus, which is based off of this Michelangelo statue, but then you know having. Um, Mary Magdalene just over there on the side and John there and um, I think there was one other person there but um, I think some of that casting was done with with how things looked in mind as opposed to how they like were able to pull off some of those performances like I thought the guy that played Pilate was pretty good but he also didn't have a lot to do and he didn't know what to do with his arms for a lot of the movie they're just kind of like hanging limply at his side. Um, I don't know. I thought, it's an interesting movie to think about. I kept trying to think about it, and I'm asking this on purpose because I think it's important still to think of it as a movie. Yeah. And not like an uh, uh, an express, like just an expression of, you know, someone's personal faith. You know what I mean? Because it is a movie. Um, how did that, how did it, like, you know, we talked about the score and the cinematography and stuff. Like, did any of the other performances kind of jump out at I you? I mean... I like I like Hirsto uh, Shapov and Claudia Gernini's kind of performance as Pilot and I, his wife. Yeah, I, like, I, I still yeah. saw like that that entire. That's a kind of like a, a less described aspect of of um, you know the story, um, you know just just that that conflict between the two, and I, I think that's done well. I think everyone does a good enough job moving the story in the sense that needs to be, but nobody's 
beyond them was tremendously fleshed out beyond you know moving that that narrative and that, that philosophical when it, scope and i think it's clever of gibson to cast like who he cast for mary magdalene um mary and john in the sense that they're all very striking people and they're not going to speak a lot when they're on screen but they're on screen a lot so you have lot. to be able to they have to be able those three actors need to be able to hold that screen when you're not watching jesus and there's a lot get of like, tight close ups and they you know they, they pull do really strong yeah. like non vocal acting mm-hmm. um, beyond that like there's they're not given you know a tremendous amount of material no work. but they they make those moments not uninteresting no which i think is important for which is this is not an un- interesting movie at all no, like, I think it it's moves a, it's I think swift it's a pretty good i think it's a pretty solid movie yeah as mel, a gibson, movie. mel gibson has directed one bad movie i think in his filmography hacksaw ridge that movie sucks never see it it's awful it's yeah hacksaw ridge is pretty good but like even like man without faces is, is solid um man without face i think it was called his phrase director review oh yeah man without a face. or man with no face i think it's um, man without a face yeah um even that's solid you know braveheart's good despite its flaws and apocalyptico is probably his most solid like constructed film i had a moment in the middle in the middle of this movie like maybe towards the beginning where i kind of wanted to just turn into apocalyptico where like jesus just runs and just murders people as he runs kind of i was like this is where this could this is the other place this movie could go it could be a quentin tarantino-esque it almost was like it does almost feel like apocalyptico was like catharsis for, for oh yeah, Mel Gibson. Well, like, I think, he yeah, he realized he's like, I need to make this movie now. Let's do it. Let's of a guy running away and murdering people, <laughs> preferably in a Mezzo, you know, American religious setting. Let's do it. He was, he was I'm ready. I'm ready for Apocalypse to go too. So, I mean, uh, speaking of sequels, he's making a sequel to this movie. He's been making a sequel to this forever. I think the last scene of this movie is a fucking cop out, and I hate it so much. Just the hand? The res- no, the resurrection scene. I fucking hate it. Oh, I-, I hate it. Because, it, like, he digs into this tone for the whole movie. You know what I mean? And then, because it, it's not called, like, the sequel's called The Resurrection of the Christ. Like, we don't need it. We know how the story goes. You know what I mean? Like, what's he trying to do with this last scene? Like, get people clapping in the theaters? I think so. I think I think it's but like why I think we it's, know it's like catharsis. But for... you, we're walking out, and you know what's happening. It's not like you're gonna. It's not like you're walking out of the theater. And you're like, I wonder how this is gonna wrap up. I guess like an empire that I gotta, strikes I gotta back. Read, I gotta read the book. This empire strikes um, back type thing. We're like, I, I hope they get him. Yeah, no, I, I think the ending's fine because you know it's coming. It is. It is. But like I just think that tableau kinda... is so striking to kind of have it go to this this computer-generated image of, like, the Damn. shroud just kind of, like, melting in on itself, and then, you know, Jim Caviezel's beautifully groomed face. And then the, the hand, yeah. Yeah, um, with the computer-generated hole in it. And it's just like, no, this I think, is not necessary. I think uh, that ending is fine. I think it's not necessary, but I think it's, it's a good, solid ending, but it should have been brought back a little more. Maybe hearing the rock moving. Yeah, that would have like been that. good. Um, that would have been good. Like, like over black, you know, over a black screen. Like it focuses on the rock unguarded or guarded or, whatever, or you know, mm-hmm. like it focuses on the Romans falling asleep and then you hear the rock move. Like that would have worked. Um, I think so too. But showing as much as it did, yeah, it's, it's a bit much. Um, in terms of the sequel, there, there should, there, I don't necessarily understand what the sequel is going to be about. I mean, I guess Jesus' descent into hell to get Moses and, and what, I don't know. It's going to be awesome. It's going to... 
I bet it's going to be awesome. I'm not. I, I'm going to not watch that. I think. But it'll be awesome. Yeah, it'll it be just, a combination. It definitely tells, it tells them type of message that I'm just not interested in in hearing. It'll be a combination: <laughs> Passion of the Christ two and Hacksaw Ridge two. Yeah, Vince Vaughn will be will be in there somehow. Yes, awesome. Anything else? Uh, no. Um, like I said, this is this is an emotional kind of aspect movie for me. The the most one, the most, the hardest one to discuss, I think, on my list. Uh, you all right? Like pers- no, yeah. This is like personal opinions, beliefs, and whatnot, kind of still. And how have I how I've definitely evolved in my personal beliefs since then. Um, uh-huh. Gotten soft, I guess, as I get older. <laughs> yeah. I just don't need the violence. Which is funny, because I still find violent movies fine, but it's like, it's different. Like, the depictions of real violence I'm, I'm over, I guess. Like, uh, like war See, movies. See, it's funny. I, you, know, Kath, you know, we have already mentioned that we're recording episode 61 after this. I much prefer this violence to the violence in your number 61. And see, I much prefer the violence in my number 61. And it's, it's not even that violent. It's, it's just car- it's cartoony. It's cartoony to me. And I'm okay with cartoonish I violence, want it to be not. towards something and not like a message thing. I want it to be to- towards like a, a, an art. And the violence in the 60... The violence in this movie, I think, is towards that art. You know what I mean? Mm. Whether it's too much or not, it's at least successfully towards that that greater image of of what Mel. Yeah, which which my sixty one is more like a cartoon right. than its violence. Getting our viewers excited for next week's episode, but we'll be recording that episode in about five six minutes. However long it takes to save this. Yeah, um, and while you're talking about saving, you can we can save a a, a tweet you send it. us. Yes. We'll save Twitter.com slash film pivotal. Yeah, or you can um, send us an email that we'll save to... We'll put it in a folder, yeah. a special little folder. We'll create a folder. The first email folder <laughs> at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to lose our shit when somebody emails us. Or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the beers that we drank um, or the movies that are on our lists or how to subscribe to us or... A link to our Twitter if that's really what you're into. Because you, cause you can't you can't get to our Twitter somehow because you it's just confusing you. It's words. just above you. Um, but until then, go to uh, go see a movie, drink Not a beer. Detective Pokemon. Detective Pikachu. Pikachu, whatever. Mm. That's how bad it is. I've forgotten the name. Detective so, something or other. Detective Jigglypuff. Detective um, Deadpool. Drink a beer and we'll talk to you next time.